0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: New Orleans has been the backdrop of many dark chapters in American history, but perhaps none so shocking as the multicultural slave rebellion of 1811.
2: So you have this, uh, you know, multi ethnic coalition coming together, employing African military tactics.
1: The New Orleans African American Museum, located in the historic district of Treme, is helping to keep the stories of America's oldest and continuous black community alive. History will echo off the walls as we walk through Le Musée de F. Paysay to hear untold stories about New Orleans' free people of color. Historian Dr. Mary Mitchell says that the rhythm of New Orleans was influenced by Africans, American Indians, and European settlers.
3: There is a beat in New Orleans. It is a percussive sound that is very particular to New Orleans.
1: Uncover little-known stories about African-American history in New Orleans on World Footprints Radio with Ian
4: and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we will explore how New Orleans became the cultural gateway to North America when we speak to University of New Orleans history professor Dr. Mary Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell will take us on a discovery of the many cultures and ethnicities that make New Orleans the most unique city in America. Also coming up on World Footprints, we will learn about the African and African-American contributions to America when we visit two historically rich museums, the New Orleans African-American Museum of Art, Culture, and History and Le Musée des FPC, a museum dedicated to honoring the accomplishments and history of New Orleans' free people of color. From the floor of the New York Times Travel Show, we will shine a destination spotlight on Panama and China's Hunan province. But first, many Americans
1: are familiar with the slave revolts led by John Brown and Nat Turner, But the story of the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811 and has remained largely untold until now. Author Daniel Rasmussen has pulled back the curtain on a long-neglected period in New Orleans and his book, American Uprising, The Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt, offers new history into the rise of slavery in the South and the nation's path to civil war. This narrative began as a research project for you when you were at Harvard University. What was it about the topic that captured your attention?
2: You know, when I first started uh, digging in, uh, I was really amazed, first of all, by how covered up this had been. And I sort of, I, you know, started working as an investigative journalist early on, and I uh, fell in love with the sort of stories that sort of dig up things that people are trying to hide. And so my first instinct when I came upon this and seeing how little was written about it uh, how consciously people were trying to cover it up back in the early 19th century. That got me going. Uh, but then what really hooked me was to see this as a story of men who were fighting uh, and willing to fight and die for freedom uh, and liberty and that sort of heroism, you know, especially you know, a 24-year-old guy, uh, that sort of story really appealed to me.
1: You say that the 1811 Slave Revolt that took place in New Orleans is the largest one in American history. Why has this story remained untold for so long?
2: You know, well, right after the revolt, uh, first of all, the planters and the federal military uh, uh, killed 100 slaves and put their heads on pikes. Um, And so that was the first act of suppression. But what followed was an act of narrative suppression uh, in letters and newspaper accounts uh, they described this revolt as not as a revolt, but as a riot led by a quote unquote horde of brigands. So basically describing the slave rebels as criminals, stripping them of any political intent, saying that the event was trivial, insignificant, and easily suppressed, uh, and, and reporting that back to Washington. And because Louisiana is sort of on the periphery of uh, America at this point, it's not even a state, uh, and it's surrounded by Spanish territory, uh, there's sort of less attention paid. Uh, so it's really a combination of the conscious efforts to cover it up by the planters and the American government uh, as well as sort of the reality that Louisiana is just not uh, as much of a center of attention at this point.
4: Well, l- let's talk a little bit about the disparity between the reality and, and the myths that have been generated and in, in, in some of your research methodologies because I can imagine uh, if this was actively uh, covered up, And uh, your research would have had to been very, very challenging. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So when I first started, I read the newspaper accounts and the letters, and I asked myself, did this even happen? Uh, Because they were that dismissive of this event. Uh, And so I had to dig to the next level of sources, which were uh, military correspondence, uh, diplomatic correspondence from French and Spanish emissaries uh, and from the American uh, Navy and federal military. Uh, and then the planters owned financial records, uh, their statements of account, uh, their ledger books. And what I did was I built up databases uh, in Excel because the best uh, tools uh, to understand you know, financial data, and this was essentially financial data, is you know, Excel. Uh, and so once I had these databases, which basically had the name, uh, every in- piece of information I had about each individual slave, I mapped those databases onto old land maps. Uh, and then use uh, Google Maps to say, well, if I know from the military correspondence that X event happened at 9 a.m., then using Google Maps can say it would have taken three hours to get there from this other location. Uh, and so built up first, you know, a spatial understanding of where things happened by using those land map, old land maps, uh, and then a chronological understanding. Uh, and then finally, sort of weaving that together into a narrative. So it was really very challenging work took me months, and it it really required, uh, you know, being innovative about the way you approach history and sort of being a detective and building this legal case uh, using uh, very fragmentary evidence.
1: This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife, Tanya, and we're exploring the history of America's largest slave revolt with author Daniel Rasmussen, who is sharing his research about the event that is detailed in his book, American Uprising the untold story about America's largest slave revolt. We have more information about the multicultural 1811 slave revolt that started in New Orleans on this show page at worldfootprints.com.
4: Why the cover-up? Why go to such lengths to cover up this event?
2: Well, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the, the first overwhelming reason uh, is simply that the idea of armed slaves uh, dressed in military uniform, flying flags, beating drums, standing up and saying we're, we're free and not only are we free, we have a real political vision, uh, is a fundamental challenge to the ideology of plantation slavery, uh, which is that slaves are not people, uh, they're animals, uh, you know, or as close as you can get to animals, and that they are not entitled to, nor are they capable of, uh, political thinking uh, and thus are suited to their role as slaves. Uh, and so the first reason that this was suppressed was simply that they didn 't want this story getting out to other slaves, and the planters themselves didn 't want to recognize the essential truth of what they were doing, which was uh, you know suppressing this political activity, suppressing uh, the inherent humanity of the slaves. Uh, the second reason uh, is that Louisiana is up for statehood at, at this very moment in Congress, uh, and William Claiborne, the American governor, is very keen on preventing uh, the atrocities that were committed, the 100 heads on pikes, mm. uh, as well as just the reality of the instability of New Orleans from getting back and reports to Washington. So he's very careful about that. Uh, and then, you know, I think, uh, finally, um, you know, you just do have the natural circumstance of Louisiana, Louisiana being on the fringe. Uh, but also, there's no sort of reaction. So after Nat Turner, one of the reasons we know a lot about Nat Turner or John Brown is they p- provoke... Serious political discussions afterwards. Whereas in Louisiana, after this revolt, the only thing that happens is that the planters call for increased American military presence. There's no reconsideration of whether slavery is right or wrong. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, sort of internal deep questioning. All they do is say, this is just another reason why we need more military support uh, to protect us, to protect the interests of slavery. And, of course, that increased militarization is one of the reasons that Louisiana is so well-prepared to fight the War of 1812 against the British. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Dan, we have a question from a listener. Lonnie from Lansing, Michigan, says that he saw you on C-SPAN, and you talked about the African connection with the Igbo tribe. Can you elaborate more about that connection and on the militarization of the revolt, which you started to touch on?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Thanks, Lonnie, for that question. Uh, So, I think we often think about uh, slaves as sort of homogenous, of being all all of one race, all of one ethnicity, but that's not true. And there's nowhere that this is less true than New Orleans, which is a totally multi-ethnic slave population. Uh, You have Congolese slaves, you have Ashanti slaves, Haitian slaves, slaves born in Louisiana, men born in Virginia, Kentucky, all coming together into this sort of melting pot, which is uh, the slave plantations outside of New Orleans. Uh, and so the leadership of this revolt actually crosses several ethnic lines. But there are really four most prominent leaders, one of whom born in Louisiana, one of whom is born in Virginia, and two of whom are Ashanti. Uh, the Ashanti kingdom was this warlike empire in West Africa that, you know, in the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, was pushing towards the coast in this sort of uh, grand imperial struggle. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, tactical connections to. Uh, You know, they're they're, they're Congolese slaves. Many of these men would have been trained from birth to be warriors. Uh, So you see a level of African military tactics being employed here. Uh, You know, very familiar. It's guerrilla warfare. Um, The idea is not to face your enemy into open battle, but rather to lure them out from their centers of power, to harass them, to wear them down. Uh, And so you have this, uh, you know, multi-ethnic coalition coming together, employing African military tactics. Uh but ultimately, I think they're also uh inspired very much by uh European military tactics and by the Haitian revolution. right They're putting on militia uniforms, their masters old militia uniforms, and they're consciously evoking uh that symbolism uh, to remind them and their other uh, other slaves uh, about Haiti uh, and about uh the recent revolution that's uh taken place there.
4: Uh, Dan, you, um, your book also touches on the this revolt, the 1811 Slave Revolt, and its significance to the Civil War. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that correlation.
2: Absolutely. You know, I think the Civil War, ultimately the reason the southern states secede, uh, is out of a fear uh, that the federal government uh, will no longer protect the institution of slavery. And they, they will no longer protect the institution of slavery against their own slaves, right? Who is the threat in this situation? Who do the southern states, why do the southern states need federal protection? They need federal protection to prevent slave revolt. And if you look at the ordinances of secession uh, and the various states' rationales for why they secede, they cite over and over again the idea of, quote, excuse me, quote, unquote, domestic insurrection, which is the idea that their own slave populations will rise up against them and kill them. Uh, and John Brown's raid is really sort of the the, the, the the big spark for that, but you have to think about the South i think as a as a militarized uh, area uh, with a captive population uh, that is uh, has as its greatest fear uh this sort of constant paranoia about slavery revolt uh, and Louisiana, because this is the largest uh, slave uprising and it, it has such a significant role in sort of shaping I think the psyche of the city. Uh, I think is an excellent example of just what they were afraid of, uh, and the ways in which um, slave revolts and political activity among their slaves uh, in shapes uh, the politics of the south
0: mm-hmm. uh, and You
2: can see it here in New Orleans with uh, the way in which this revolt drives the French and Spanish planters into the arms of the American government, uh, solidifies American control, uh, and then uh, fosters the militarization uh, and arming of this area.
4: Though New Orleans' multicultural roots were more pronounced in the city's early beginnings, we can still feel the confluence of cultures today.
2: To imagine it back then, uh, and to read the descriptions of what the port of New Orleans was like then, and to see it not as it is now—you uh, know—I think New Orleans is, uh, you know, is sort of less the center of attention then. But New Orleans then is, you know, the richest city in the South, perhaps the richest city in America. As uh, the Uh, northern edge of this Caribbean culture. Uh, We're constantly having ships coming in from Haiti, from Cuba, from Brazil, from Africa, from England, uh, from Charleston, Uh, you know, coming into the ports, you know, 40 different languages being spoken uh, there uh, right, you know, in the harbor. Uh, And I think that, uh, even though that, that, I think that culture persists today, I think it was much, much stronger back then, Uh, you know, and I think you could really feel it when you read Travelers' accounts.
1: Dan, even though we talk about slavery, the peculiar institution in America's development, we're now 150, almost 200 years since uh, large-scale slavery in the United States, and I'm curious from your perspective as an academic, the lessons, the important lessons in society building, in economics, politics that came out of this very dark period in American history are there lessons today as uh, we look at the world and even as we look at our country uh, stand uh strong in your mind as we think about who we are as people today and some of the challenges that we face in this world
2: yeah i think that's a that's a fascinating question one i've thought a lot about i mean i think the the first thing when when i sort of think about this period is i think it's 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 important to consider that slavery uh is the foundation of the american economy Uh, it really is. Cotton, for example, is the number one uh, and the majority of U.S. exports from 1800 to 1930. Uh, In the antebellum period, these southern cities, Charleston, New Orleans, were much wealthier uh, than northern cities. And the northern cities were in most ways dependent upon southern agriculture, whether it is uh, for textile mill production that springs up uh, in New England, or whether it's the shipping and Uh, merchant banking that uh, emerges in in, in New York and Boston. Uh, And that's largely dependent on southern cotton and southern sugar. And that, in turn, is dependent upon slavery. Uh, So for me, I think it raises a lot of questions about, you know, economic growth here uh, in the United States being based upon slavery. Uh, And I think a man's ability to rationalize uh, and make, uh, you know, what was really a horrific and immoral institution Uh, seem palatable because it had such material benefits to this country uh, in terms of our economic growth, in terms of fueling American expansion and American power. Uh, And so for me, I think it it, it sort of raises questions about, you know, how we think about our past and and, 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 and I think pushing us to look at places that I think make us uncomfortable. Uh, But I think there's another lesson which I think was really important to draw uh, from this story, uh, which is, I think, that, that we can see the slaves not as victims, uh, that not to see slavery as the sign that we should feel guilty, ashamed, dark about, uh, but rather uh, that we should celebrate the accomplishments of the enslaved. That these men and women not only were they fueling American economic uh, economic growth, uh, but they were also uh, resisting uh, and fighting for freedom and liberty, uh, and dying for it. And these heroes who who, who die in the cane fields of 1811. Uh, whose actions I think stand as a testament to the best American ideals uh, of freedom, liberty, and equality, uh, and yet who are beheaded uh, because of their beliefs uh, in those actions. I think that if we can feel proud about their accomplishments uh, and celebrate those accomplishments, I think hopefully we can uh, move towards a better understanding of who we are as people.
4: To uncover more history through the pages of American Uprising, The Untold Story About America's Largest Slave Revolt, Visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link to the book.
1: In this destination spotlight, Nicole Marciac helps us shine a light on the country of Panama from the New York Times Travel Show.
5: Panama has something for everyone, and it's... Um... It's just a different place because the city is so cosmopolitan, but we also have natural reserve parks. Our beaches are tropical paradises in the Caribbean and in the Pacific side. Um, regarding culture, we do have we have indigenous tribes in Panama. It's um, basically you can go and you can interact with the communities. Every anyone that comes, they can go and interact with the communities and see the way of life, dance with them, eat their food, and like experience everything from the first hand. Um, besides that, we are we have. More than 25% of, of Panama is National parks, protected National parks. So you can actually um, go hiking in a national park that is only 15 minutes away from the city center. Or we have two of those close by the city center. And then there is uh, Cerrancon, which is a mountain in the middle of the city, the only mountain in the middle of the city that is not so high. But when you go up there, you walk within this like, little rainforest, and you arrive to the top and you have the most incredible view of the Bay of Panama and everything. So that's very nice um toward the outside of the city we have a lot of beaches, we have surf bi- surf beaches which are um we have been very famous which are playa venal and boca del toro, Santa Catalina, we have different of those. Um we have incredible sport fishing in Darien, which is um in a in a place called Piñas Bay. We have um golf resorts, anything. You mention it, there's something for everyone. So.
4: So for those, though, who want a real immersion experience, you mentioned there are uh, programs uh, that allow people to interact, travelers to interact with locals, with some of the indigenous tribes. How would they find those?
5: Um, well, you just go online, and normally the one that it's more accessible, it's called the Embera Tribe. So there you can... Uh, you can just there is um Gamboa rainforest resort they organize um tours to go to these places and different tour operators within Panama they organize tri- trips to do this uh it's a it's not very easy to arrive there on your own so normally you have to go with a tour that is organized already and it's very nice because you go into um into the Gatun Lake and which is the main lake of the of the Panama Canal and you go in this little canoe inside the like inside the forest and you arrive and it's like pure nature a hundred percent and it's just it's beautiful um we actually have t- uh, five different tribes they all live in different regions and there we have um the cuna, Yal, the cuna uh, indigenous tribe which is in, living in the caribbean islands which is in a protected area uh, of a thousand i don't know how many islands and it's it's just beautiful there's nothing there then we have um the emberas that are the ones that i was telling you that they live uh Close by, like the rivers and lakes, and then we have Noevoquele, which live in the mountains, and we have different different type of indigenous groups, and they've all they've all kept their traditions very intact, almost intact. They don't really uh, inter they don't really change the way of life to to adapt themselves to what modern life normally is in the city. So, but there are some that of course do, but it's very nice to see that they have kept that um, they have kept that authenticity, I would say.
4: On a previous visit to New Orleans, we had the pleasure of meeting John Hankins, the former executive director of the New Orleans African American Museum of Art, Culture, and History. Established in 2000, the mission of the museum has been to preserve, interpret, and promote the African American cultural heritage of New
6: Orleans with a particular emphasis on the Treme community. Treme is the oldest continuously settled African-American community in America and is situated uh, just adjacent to the French Quarter. Uh, The New Orleans African-American Museum is only three blocks from the French Quarter and three blocks from Armstrong Park, which is the home of uh, Congo Square. The the neighborhood was like the third neighborhood built in the city and was Primarily uh, populated by uh, refugees or immigrants from uh, Saint-Domingue or Haiti after uh, the uh, successful revolution there. And um, it is, uh, has the distinction of being, up until uh, uh, pretty much the Civil War up to 1850 or so, the largest and most sophisticated neighborhood of people of color in America, where over 80%. Of the property that there was owned by uh, mm. people of color.
4: Mm. Talk about the the building that the museum is in. It's a beautiful building, beautiful grounds, but it has a, a wonderful uh, historical significance as well.
6: Well, thank you, Tanya, uh, and we were so pleased uh, to host you all uh, over for a visit. Uh, that we are uh, we cover an entire block, so we have seven historic buildings. Uh, like I said, we're within three blocks of the French Quarter, block and a half from St. Augustine's Church. Uh, we are the home of the um, uh, Mardi Gras Indian and Second Line crowds. Our main building uh, is called the uh Milieu Gold Wave House, or all the local people call it the Treme Villa. is the largest and finest example of what is called uh, Creole villa construction in the city. It's uh, You know, and it owes itself to the African-Caribbean roots of all the architecture here uh, in New Orleans. And so it's a magnificent mansion uh, that houses our historical exhibits. Mm. You really showcase the trades. You showcase the artistry. You showcase
1: some of the wonderful furniture and tell those stories through those artifacts.
6: Yes. Well... You know, museums really do tell the narratives of our people through objects, and the objects that we have here are phenomenal. First is the architecture. You know, many of your listeners uh, might be surprised to learn that that porch that they're sitting on, uh, that they're uh, welcoming their guests to, is an African architectural construct that was brought to the United States uh, from Af- uh, through the Caribbean uh, to Louisiana from Africa. And uh, we have done extensive research to uh, trace those origins to specific people and specific times here. Also, uh, many of the original uh, families of African Americans in New Orleans, uh, they trace their roots to uh, master craftsmen, people who were known for... All this beautiful ironwork that you see here and the woodwork and the balconies that you see in the city, 99% of that was built by uh, people of color, either slave, enslaved, or free people of color. And we had a, a huge population of free people of color. So many of them came in the year 189. in fact, that uh, the city. Uh, forbade them to move uh, into the French Quarter and on this side of the river. And so that's why we have a large population of Haitian uh, 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 descendants uh, in Algiers on the West Bank.
1: You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are speaking to John Hankins, a Historian and former Executive Director of the New Orleans African American Museum. Treme is America's oldest black neighborhood, and it is also the site of significant economic, cultural, political, social, and legal events that have shaped the course of history in black America for the past two centuries. For more information about Faubourg Treme or this museum, visit NOAam.org or visit this show page on our website at worldfootprints.com for relevant links. John, some of the most extraordinary artifacts in the museum, and I think things that one will not find anywhere else other than here in New Orleans and Louisiana, are some of the paper documents Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: enslaved people used to get their freedom because of the unique way that Louisiana had to record their presence here.
6: Well, Louisiana is unique in the Americas in that uh, we have records of the uh, black population that predates the Civil War and goes well into the uh, colonial period beginning in 1719 from the very first ships as a matter of fact we have the records of the very first uh, 25 ships that uh, arrived in New Orleans with their cargo with the individual names of the individual uh, enslaved Africans but People in Louisiana, uh, black people in Louisiana, were able to purchase their freedom. And so we have uh, on display uh, manumission papers or freedom papers that show how people were able to buy their, uh, buy their freedom. And uh, it, the language is chilling. One of them reads that uh, a young woman was, had the privilege to purchase herself uh, for a certain uh, price. So you know what the museum does, I think, better than any other place is that we put you uh, in contact with uh, authentic objects, from authentic furniture to authentic quilts to authentic manumission papers. We have uh, signed uh, documents by Frederick Douglass. We encourage everybody to come and see these and see and touch uh, these connections to the Afro Caribbean past.
4: Now, there's an exhibit I want to ask you to explain uh, dra- Draptomedia. Am I saying it right? Draptomania. draptomania. Right. The disease of freedom. That's, That's right. very provocative. Explain a little bit about that
6: well uh... in the run-up to the civil war in eighteen fifty one uh... the scientific journals what appeared in a scientific journal was a medical uh, document that purported to discover a new disease called drapetomania now the word is a greek combination of two greek words mania which means uh... crazy or insane and drapeto or drape piece which means runaway slave this doctor samuel cartwright who was the leading authority on the uh physical health and condition of the uh, Negro race uh, s- through scientific study uh, supposedly discovered that only black people in slavery could catch a disease that uh, would entice them to run away. And mm. so if you were a slave and you ran away uh, you would said you could be uh, diagnosed as being mentally insane and crazy. Mm. Uh, uh, and it is uh, incredible that such a uh, kind of pseudoscience could be published in scientific journals at the time but uh, we have those documents and uh... You know, it's, like, really incredible. You know, they said things like, well, you know, this disease uh, had a lot of symptoms. The disease was contagious.
4: Huh. (laughs) Well, I guess I got it, and, you know, and it got a little bout of ornery. I think you would have had.
6: I think you would have uh, been diagnosed with (laughs) drapedomania. I would have been (laughs)
4: diagnosed with a lot of things Uh, back in the day.
6: Um, But we welcome people to come in and really experience what our, uh, you know, the the, uh, just incredible conditions that people had to live in.
1: To walk through the history of America's oldest black community, or to experience the rhythm of Faubourg-Tremé on the African American Museum of Art, Culture, and History walking tour, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link to the museum. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will uncover stories about prominent free people of color in New Orleans when we walk through Le Musée de FPC with our guide, Beverly McKenna. We will also sit down with University of New Orleans history professor, Dr. Mary Mitchell, to talk about the African, Native American, Caribbean, and European influences on New Orleans today. Then stay tuned as we shine a destination spotlight on China's Hunan province. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
4: History echoes off the walls and along the wooden floorboards as we walk through New Orleans Museum of Free People of Color with guide Beverly McKenna. This historic Greek Revival former residence in Upper Treme displays a hidden history of people whose stories had only been preserved in archival boxes and on cemetery headstones. Trapped by law into a marginal existence between slavery and freedom, free people of color were anomalies in a caste society rooted in black and white, master and enslaved. Still their undeniable achievements and vibrant culture serve to rewrite the conventional narrative of the history of
7: New Orleans. This is, let me say, the FBC. It's a house museum dedicated to the story and legacy of free people of color. Um, it's a result of our collection, which goes back over 30 years, of documents, um, artifacts, furnishings, paintings, um, as they relate to this particular group of people. As you all know, there's nothing peculiar about or special about this group of people being only here. There were free people of color all over the United States, 250,000 of them prior to the Civil War, but there was a larger group of them here. Records of these free people of color going back to 1722 uh, when they first appeared here and first show up on the the records. We begin our story here, uh, of course, recognizing the connection to Africa, uh, the African retentions which marked this area and which many people still come to visit and to appreciate and to enjoy today are those, um, the food, the cooking, all the things that people, the music, the jazz, they all can be traced to Senegal and most of the Africans who came or the slaves who came here, the enslaved had their roots in Senegal. Um, There's no record of people of color ever having owned this house. Hmm. However, this area is called Upper Treme. You just left Treme, which they told you was one of the oldest neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Uh, housing developments in the country built and developed by people of color. And so this is just an extension of that area uh, wherein going back to the Spanish colonial days it is said and recorded that people of color owned 80% of the property in this um, area through the land, lots, the houses, and so forth. And that's what I'm saying. Although there's no record of people of color ever owning this prior to us, um, we know just because we were dominant in the trades, plastering, ironwork, mm-hmm. carpentry, a very sophisticated level of craftsmanship that we built it. So that's our connection. Mm-hmm. Doctor Louis Charles Rudinez, who was a man of color, um, mother was from Haiti. He was a physician got his medical degree in Paris in 1853. He came back and then he got another medical degree from Dartmouth. This is in the 1800s, mid-1800s. Came back home, had a thriving medical practice where he treated the poor and rich alike. A lot of the noted people were his, in the community were his, were his patients. But in addition to that, Dr. Ruth Niz was very much an activist. And he established one of the first papers dedicated or directed to people of color. And uh, again, he spoke out. He was an advocate for the enslaved as well as the free people. And then he started the New Orleans Tribune.
1: Perhaps one of the most forgotten stories about the free people of color is the activist role they played in the Civil Rights Movement as early as 1862 and in the landmark Plessy v. Ferguson case of 1896. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Antonia Fitzpatrick. We are touring Le Musée de FPC in New Orleans with Beverly McKenna, who is introducing us to untold stories about some prominent free people of color in New Orleans. To learn more about the contributions of New Orleans' free people of color, Visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link to Les Musées de FPC.
7: We publish a newspaper that we started in 1985, my husband and I. And because we were such admirers of Dr. Rudin as his spirit, his voice, his advocacy for the downtrodden, really that we uh, named our paper the New
1: Orleans Some of the people of color came to New Orleans as free people and some had to buy their way to freedom as Beverly explains.
7: A lot of them, some of them came here free through the Caribbean. They came up either as servants or whatever but they came here already free. Some of them received manumission because of service or affection, mm-hmm. close relationships with some of the people in the country. This is in in the community. This is an actual manumission paper going back to 1761 mm. of a uh, Francois Amadee. Their is still living here in New Orleans now, uh, where she was granted her freedom because of her relationship, her faithful and loyal service. Mm. Um, But what amazes me, and the one that I'm always impressed with, that I always stop and think about, uh, because a lot of the people came here with these very, you know, they were skilled. They were skilled laborers, so they were very valuable. And they, as they went out or on their weekends off, time off, they were allowed to go out and work, hire themselves out. And then, but they had to come back and split the money. With their owner, Um, in doing so, though they saved their money, and then they were able to. Many of them bought their own freedom, or the freedom of loved ones, and I just always find that amazing. And that happened more uh, under the Spanish Spanish rule. They were very much in favor of this, and this is a mandat de payment where they this out. Afro-Creole women in New Orleans were forced to wear their
1: hair differently under what was known as the Tignon Law, as a way to keep them oppressed and subservient. Even so, the Tignon women were able to express their individuality with the way they wore their hair, as Beverly explains.
7: Uh, The Tignon Law was one. These people were very prideful. They had a lot of dignity, uh, very confident, and so... The governor, Governor Miro, back in the 1785, he thought these people were just a little bit too full of themselves. So he made the women, woman, this is and this is true story, and it's still amazing to me. They had to wrap their head in the manner and style of the servant class. So they couldn't go out with hats on, or they couldn't go out with their hair fixed. They had to wrap their head. Well, you know. Uh, ladies are so these people were very inventive and very sassy so they learned how to decorate it put feathers put mm-hmm. jewels and so then uh, they made it you know beautiful mm-hmm. so they um, so then women all over the area started dressing their head but this was called the tignon law to step into the footprints of American history in Les Messe
4: de FPC To uncover more stories about New Orleans' free people of color, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for relevant links.
1: In this Destination Spotlight, we learn about the history, culture, and tourism offerings of China's Hunan Province from Evan Chan at the New York Times Travel Show.
8: Henan Province is uh, located in the central part of China, in the mainland of China. Um, it is where 5,000 years of Chinese civilization began. And why is that? It is because the Yellow River, the Mother River of China, runs by sex, my province. And we're best known for the Shaolin Temple and Shaolin Kung Fu. Buddhism is um, the, main, uh, the main religion. Well, there's no official religion of China, but it is one of the big influences upon my people. Um, And Buddhism entered from India into China through the Henan province. And, uh, you know, so anything that has to do with culture, anything that has to do with what makes our Chinese civilization significant is actually born of China. And that's why our slogan for the Henan uh, Provincial Tourism is Henan where China was born. I mean, every single person in China with a Chinese name can trace their roots back to a village in Henan. And so it's just a matter of fact. It's not, you know, we're saying something that, uh, you know, the other 30 provinces are going to contradict. It's just a fact. Yeah, 5,000 years of history began in Henan. I can trace my ancestors back to uh, the Chan village in, um, in Henan.
4: How would somebody travel to your province from, say, a major uh, city like uh, Beijing or Shanghai?
8: Besides getting there, once you get into China, the main ways of getting around are high-speed rail and airlines. When you go to China, a lot of people have this um, feeling like, oh, it's, you know, ancient land, 5,000 years. Look at the United States, uh, 1776 until now. How how old is it, right? Um, Our 5,000-year-old nation is actually very very modernized so you get the old and the new so they're surprised to see oh my gosh you know i get to stay in this you know uh international five-star hotel oh and on the other hand i'm walking the steps that you know confucius walked, and i'm i'm here you can do anything in china and it's, it's got the perfect combination of uh, uh of the old and the new i think they'll be surprised by that
1: The diverse heritage of the people of New Orleans makes this city very unique, interesting, and alive with traditions that are not found in any other city in the country. New Orleans is a place with Africans where they intermingled with Native Americans and Europeans, creating a sustainable culture that keeps New Orleans unique even to this day. The African contributions to this city is vast, but little is known about it. Dr. Mary Mitchell is a professor of history at the University of New Orleans, and she joins us to fill in this information gap. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you. Tell us about the first Africans to touch New Orleans soil.
3: Well, it seems as though the first enslaved Africans came into New Orleans in 1719, and there was, so that was the sort of the first wave of, of Africans into the city, and New Orleans is kind of unique in that it had kind of two waves of Africans with a gap in between, so you had this first wave come in in the early 18th century, then you don't have any importation for a little while, and then it gets restarted under the... Spanish colonial regime. So you have people that sort of Creolized a little bit,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and then you have Africans coming over who are not Creole, who are African, bringing, and so it sort of brought in a sort of a new infusion of of African culture, African music, African language, everything.
4: Now, I understand we did a couple of plantation tours yesterday, mm-hmm. and the Africans, as they said, first came to or were imported to New Orleans, came from Senegal. Is that...
3: Accurate. That's right. Most of them seem to have come from the Senegambian region of West Africa. Okay. Um, so which is which is good to know for historians because then that helps us kind of understand what their culture was like in Africa and then there in turn understand a little bit more about what they contributed here. Mm-hmm particularly Senegambians were good with iron working uh, and so they brought a lot of those skills over with them when they came I mean the colony was struggling in the early 18th century and they knew if you read all the governor's notes and and letters back and forth to the um to France they're they're struggling to keep it afloat and they say we need African labor we mm-hmm. have to have it
4: So you you mentioned, you know, Creolized. Some were Creole. Mm. It's a whole concept of of Creole. Um, Talk about that and some of the early racial, ethnic dynamics that took place. Yeah, sure. Well, Creole is
3: a contentious word, as anybody in New Orleans will tell you. (laughs) Um, But basically, the best way to define it is anyone with with ethnic roots somewhere else who was born in the Americas. So that could include Africans, that could Mm. include... Um, uh, people whose roots are in France and Spain, all over. So it's an all-encompassing word. So when you're looking for the sort of ethnic roots in New Orleans, you see in the colonial period all these different groups coming together, but very quickly creolizing, Mm -hmm. which is that they made an entirely new culture out of a combination of all those other um, cultures. And so New Orleans is probably one of the more diverse places, certainly in North America. Even in the 19th century, it's probably one of the most diverse cities uh, because it's a port
0: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and because it has a strange colonial history with French and the Spanish, especially with the African history of the city.
1: When we look at New Orleans, and we've been fortunate on our trips to, to learn more about it. We have learned a lot about about uh, the African contributions as artisans, as furniture makers, but the architectural look and feel of New Orleans uh, from the design of homes, that has a strong set of uh, African antecedents. Would you speak to that?
7: Sure.
3: Um, well, certainly the, the shotgun house is the one that people usually point <laughs> to. and uh... there's been debate about actually where it comes from but certainly the caribbean um, is full of shotgun houses as well and it does resemble construction within uh, West Africa as well. So it seems it, unfortunately a lot of what you, the answer is is creolism. That, that all of these forms get creolized in the process of colonization and they, they, they become a combination of things. But yes, they do have African um, roots. There's definitely a contribution there. It wouldn't be creole otherwise. It would just be sort of French inspired or, or something like that.
4: And what about some of the other influences like musical traditions um, even dancing traditions, you know, I'm thinking about the Mardi Gras Indians, sure. in fact, and yeah. um, you know, I mean, there has to, there's such an intermingling of cultures here. i refer to New Orleans as a cultural gumbo, and that's. Essentially, what it is, yeah, and the,
3: actually, the word gumbo comes from an African. Oh, well, <laughs> so, of course yeah. Yes. So it, it um, but sure. So it seems like what I'm not a music historian, but what music historians say is, with New Orleans, there is a beat in New Orleans. It is a percussive sound that is very particular to New Orleans. So a lot of the Instruments and things may have, have um, Western roots, but the but the beat is pretty unique. And mm-hmm. they think that, you know, certainly it comes from that being the strongest pulse that you could contain um, or retain uh, from Africa, right? The, 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 the beat. So in Congo Square, I mean, those are the stories that you hear people dancing in Congo Square on Sundays. It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that rhythm uh, is something that African people could... Um, keep alive and you see it I mean you see it in the earliest jazz records you Mm -hmm. see it even in some of the hip hop stuff that comes out today you can still hear that that particular beat and what about one of my favorite topics um, food Mm -hmm. What about the culinary Mm influence yeah yeah again it's really hard to trace that we know that African enslaved Africans are making most of the food Um, particularly in the colonial period and in the 19th century Um, and so it's it's hard to um, find exact roots but certainly the rice which they cultivated in Africa becomes a staple here Um, and the tomatoes and peppers and things that really come out of of African cooking, those seem to have probably been introduced by uh, Africans, but there's little sort of textual mention of that. So we're Mm -hmm. we're sort of dependent on archaeologists to try to figure this out. They find the seeds for us to look at, uh, to explain to us what's being um, cooked in the kitchen.
1: The rich and varied culture of New Orleans is evidenced in its food, music, and architecture. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing our interview from New Orleans with University of New Orleans history professor Dr. Mary Mitchell, who is giving us a taste of New Orleans' world flavors as we soak up the rhythm of the French Quarter.
4: How did you become interested in, in uh, the study of um, African contributions to the city?
3: Interesting question. Um, I was mostly interested in African-American history around the time of emancipation Mm -hmm. and that moment when uh, 4 million people in the whole country go from being enslaved to being free. And New Orleans seemed like a terrific place to study that. So that's where I started doing my research because you had such a large population of free people of color here before the Civil War. And they, in themselves, had tremendous contributions to the city in terms of... Um, artisanry and masonry, uh, and certainly um, culturally, and so that group sort of started um, emancipation before emancipation in a sense, that they were really working to exercise freedom, even though there was still slavery in Mm place. And so that was an interesting population. And you really only get that particular population, which is still very Creole in many ways, in New Orleans. And a lot of those people had roots in Haiti. Uh-huh. And that introduces a whole another sort of complicated history we probably don't have time to discuss, but that really transformed the city as well as refugees coming from Haiti in the 19th century. A lot of
1: places have really placed an emphasis on storytelling and showing uh, African-American history in their cities through trails, through museums and things like that, and we know New Orleans has a museum as well. What sorts of initiatives can you share with us that the city has taken to really put that history, to put that history out there so people can discover it even when they're in places like the French Quarter or other parts of the city?
3: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think maybe the one most tourists encounter is the um, National Park Service, I believe, uh, runs the Laura Plantation out on River Road, and then they have the Creole Townhouse. And to me, that's one of the best... um, things that people can do in terms of trying to understand that dynamic of how people actually lived in, in the 19th century in New, in New Orleans. Um, and they've done a really good job of trying to excavate that history. Of families across racial lines, it's all one family, but they're Creole, and they're, they're of African descent, and they're of French descent, and they they, they move back and forth between translation and, and the city itself. So that's, that's one thing that the Park Service has been doing. And also the Park Service has the um, the jazz um, center over on on the on the um Decatur street right. uh, which is another sort of really rich resource because it brings in m- musicians particularly a lot of these elderly jazz musicians mm-hmm. for oral interviews and for performances and things like that mm-hmm. um, and that sort of history will get lost if it's not recorded mm-hmm. um, You know, jazz itself is, is imperiled in some ways at least the traditional jazz forms are sort of imperiled and you have to record those voices mm-hmm. so those are two things in particular I think that, that have been very helpful. If you go to Lewis Digital that's sort of a consortium that brings together digital stuff from archives all over the state mm-hmm. um, that's one place people can go to see some primary resource material. And the Historic New Orleans Collection is getting a lot of their things digitized, they probably told you about already, and available online. Okay.
4: Um, I'm curious about the dynamics between the free people of color and the slaves, because they they coexisted Mm -hmm. together. How
3: did that happen? Really, under the Spanish colonial regime in the 18th century, um, you see an explosion of free people of color. And then... Um, in the early 19th century, with the refugees from, from Haiti, you see a, a large number of free people coming in. So it's not—it some of it is sort of a uh, society developed out of New Orleans, mm-hmm. and some of it is developed out of that refugee population. And so that those two populations come to coexist within New Orleans. Um, so you have a lot of very prominent free people of color who are descended from those Haitian refugees. Um, but you also have some who have their roots in the 18th century here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Now, their interaction with enslaved people also kind of hard to figure out. Um, certainly, there were some free people of color who were very wealthy and owned slaves. Um, but there were there were also free people of color who abhorred slavery and um, who sort of wrote poetry and 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 things, um, cer- certainly in a veiled way. Before the Civil War, they had to kind of hide what they were talking about, but. Opposed to slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to sort of um, and trying to work towards a a better definition of freedom even before the Civil War for mm-hmm. people of color. Once you get to the Civil War, free people of color pretty quickly ally themselves with the former slave population politically. Okay, and that becomes very very important um, because those people, the free people of people who were free before the Civil War, are educated. They have resources. They even have a newspaper. And so they have access um, to getting their political point across Mm -hmm. uh, that perhaps uh, recently free people did not. It was a very
4: important alliance between the two. For more information about the multicultural influences in New Orleans, visit the show page at worldfootprints.com. that when most people visit New Orleans, they really don't think about the history that built that city. And certainly, walking down Bourbon Street, the largest slave revolt in America is not something that comes to the forefront of one's mind.
1: As we learned from Daniel Rasmussen, one of the things that he mentioned is that the reason why it was so difficult to uncover this history is that it was deemed trivial, insignificant, and easily suspect. I think those were his words, and that's a threat that also ties into what Dr. Mitchell was saying about just how hard it is to uncover a lot of this history as it relates to uh, Black people and people of color in New Orleans. They have to go deep, deeper and deeper and deeper to really get to the truth.
4: Well, I'm sure you know there was a lack of record keeping as well, and. Certainly because the slave revolt, which would surprise a lot of people, it certainly surprised me, it was multicultural. And a lot of the actions of the slaves who were revolting were based on military training. And that really took me by surprise. And so not only was there a lack of record keeping, but I think it was an embarrassment for the people of New Orleans, for the government of New Orleans at that time. And so I understand why this particular event was swept under the rug.
1: And I think what it speaks to when we hear about the slaves, whether it's the slave revolt or uh, slaves working in the trades, these were intelligent people. These were smart people. These were not your typical stereotyped view of slaves. These were skilled people, and that was one of the things that came through when we toured Le Musee de F. Pace. Again, looking at the furniture and also the uh, just just the artistry of what went into making a lot of the uh, buildings and uh, the furnishings and, and all of that stuff. And we also saw that, too, in the African-American Museum as well. There was just a lot of skilled labor even amongst those who were enslaved
4: right and i know you know again their understanding of this period of history is skewed in some ways because the storytelling has not been accurate and in large part you know again because of the the things that we've already mentioned the lack of record keeping and Ego, very strong ego on the part of the um, government of some of these, these cities. You know, I've thought a lot about the free people of color when we walk to the museum. First, it would surprise people to know that in the deep south of New Orleans, there were free people of color during a time of slavery. And these were very learned people. They were, as you mentioned, very skilled people. You know, very crafty And people who had Incredible business acumen as well
1: Right, and they also Were part of a professional class That consisted of doctors Of lawyers, of activists Of publishers, as we learned From Beverly Just uh, touring uh, touring the home there That uh, now houses the museum's artifacts Mm -hmm. So there was always A great deal of talent uh, Regardless of what one's stature was, whether slave or as a Creole, there was always a lot of talent, and it took that to build that city and build this country, and hopefully that's something that was illuminated during the course of this show.
4: I hope so. So in closing, we would like to honor the memory of someone that we really fell in love with, the late Dr. Maya Angelou, who said... Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all people's cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends. Very, very powerful words. As always, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you, and we thank you for inviting us into your home and your life. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio.
7: World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeart Radio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.